Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med podcast, where we're talking little patients but big medicine. This is part two of our discussion on human trafficking with Dr. McKinney Chisholm Straker. If you haven't heard part one, stop this episode right now, go back one in your feed and listen to that. It gives you the background for everything that we're going to discuss today. The focus of this episode is on once a patient is in your care and you have some suspicions for trafficking or they have already disclosed, what are some of the legal ramifications of that? What are some of the healthcare needs and what resources are available to both the patient and to the care provider. At the end, we wrap it up talking a little bit about ongoing work that McKinney is doing, as well as her organization, Heal Trafficking, which I will link to in the show notes. There, there's a way for us to be compliant with the law and still respect our patients and their agency. And, you know, the conversation of whether or not media reporting is good or bad is I think outside of the scope of one individual clinician to solve and fix because not complying with the law will always go badly for us. But that being said, there's a couple things. One is that especially when I'm, so to be clear, because of the Child Abuse Prevention and Treatment Act, the revision in 2015, we are all mandated reporters of labor and sex trafficking suspicion, concern for it for minors 18, under the age of 18. For adults, we are not. Human trafficking in and of itself is not a mandated reporting requirement for adults. We're still mandated reporters for other things, right? So if we have a patient, well, I mean, it depends on your state, but in New York, for example, if someone comes in with second and or third degree burns, I know we're using different language, but when I trained, that's what we called it, um, second and third degree burns um, over 5% or more of their body, I'm a mandated reporter. Now, I don't report to, it's, it's what you report to the police versus to the Department of Health versus to your child abuse registry, right? So if it's an animal bite, the police don't, not that they don't care, but that's not their purview. So I'm going to call the Department of Health, for example. So I still have to report if someone with a trafficking experience or I have a suspicion for trafficking comes in with something else that I'm a mandated reporter about. But I like to, my practice is to, if I think that a story is going to go a certain way, I tell people up front what I have to report about. This way, they have the control of the conversation. They get to decide what happens. That may not still, I mean, still, I may have to report, right? If I have a gunshot wound that comes in, it kind of doesn't really matter what they say, like, about the story and who done it. I, it's a GSW. I'm done. But they understand from what I tell them that, number one, my first, first, first job, my goal is their health care. We will see to that and those needs before any mandated reporting happens if they don't want that. If they want, if they're fine with a report and they actually think that that might be helpful. And I've had patients that say, I've had 10 year olds, which is terrifying to me, say that sounds like a good idea. Like when a kid knows that, that is a bad situation and shows a great deal of maturity on their part um, and a great deal of trust that they're trusting a system is going to help them. Can you give us an example of the language that you use if you're trying to tell a patient, you, you think the questions are going to go that direction about trafficking and, and how you alert them about what you have to report on? Yeah, um, I don't give them the exhaustive list because that is, I think, terrifying. Um, and then they'll be like, I'm not going to tell you anything. But I do say, so from what I'm, I'm starting to hear, I, I want to let you know that if I, as a physician, am concerned that someone might be hurting you or that you are in danger because you are a child under the law, I may have to tell someone else about this. I may, I may be required by law to tell someone else. I want you to know that as we move forward in this conversation. 
And then I just, that's it. I don't need to say more. I can let them talk. And I say someone else because again, the someone else may be not exactly who they think it is. It may not be the police. It's very often the child abuse registry. For, in the, for me in New York, that's ACS. That's not necessarily, you know, a, a, a police officer coming to see them. That's up to ACS, not me. It depends on what the circumstances are. If we're honest about it, a lot of the kids that we're seeing in the ED that we think we need to make a report for, a lot of them are already in the system. They already know the system. They already know what right. is mandated reporting. So they're already clear about what they should or shouldn't say. Um, it's really, I just say that so that they know that I know and so that we're all on the same page about what might happen next. And then if they're fine with that, then I do that sort of in tandem because I want to make sure that I'm with them, assuming that my shift isn't over kind of thing, um, that that I'm with them so that they have someone they've already established rapport with. And if they don't want to make a report, I say, that's that's fine. I hear you. I still have to make the report. Let's do what you came here for. Let's make sure that we have a good follow-up plan for you from a healthcare perspective. And then I can make that report. I don't have the right to detain anyone. This might be a little bit of a, of a broad question, but let's say you've identified a patient who is being trafficked. What what do you what do? You do? What do they need? What do, What do you have to do? Well, let's take the easy scenario first. The easy scenario is they're an adult. I still always tend to their healthcare first. If they came in for drug overdose, which I had a case of a patient last year who did, my first job was, let's see what happens when the Narcan wears off. Because the whole conversation about whether or not they want to get out of their situation and all of that could be moot if they need to be admitted because they need a Narcan drip. We always do the healthcare first. I do have that frank conversation with them of, hey, I'm, I'm concerned about you. What do you think? And sometimes they're like, oh, no, 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 no this is all fine. This is like, I wanted to do X, Y, Z. Um, and you know, whether or not I believe them is a different story, but you know, then I had that conversation with them. To me, it still sounds like someone is in charge of this or making you do this. If that is true in the future, please know that you can come back here. Um, if someone, just like we do for, um, sexual assault, if someone is a survivor of sex trafficking or in the course of their labor trafficking has been sexually assaulted, we actually should be uh, empirically treating STIs. So that looks like treating gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trick. And depending on, and, and we know that all of that, those meds, especially when a lot of them are given orally, can be quite nauseating and upset, upsetting to the tummy. Um, it's important sometimes to give those meds, dispense those meds from the ED. Hopefully every ED has a, a, a system for that because, you know, if, if someone comes in on a Friday night at 3 a.m., which is technically Saturday, right, and your ID cl- clinic isn't open how are they supposed to get those meds um, to get them through the weekend? So you should have a plan for, okay, you can either take your metronidazole all at once if you think you have a really strong tummy or, you know, you can space it out over some time, a couple of days. And then, you know, I try to give them Zofran or Reglan or whatever um, to make sure that they don't vomit and ideally that they have food in their tummy as well. So doing sort of those medical things that we know, thinking about HIV prep and PEP is a very important thing to consider. If someone can't come back for the continuation of that treatment and testing, it is not appropriate, right? Like you can't start someone on prep and then just be like, good luck. Like what's the follow-up plan? How are they going to keep staying on prep? Um, Especially if they're not willing to leave or not ready to leave their situation. And even with PEP, most EDs that I've worked in, at least in New York, can only dispense a week's supply. Um, Part of that is just due to the fact that we want people to come back for all the testing they need, um, including LFTs. And if, if you don't have the capacity to give them someone that month's supply, then you need to have a frank conversation with them about either what is the follow-up plan or here's why this isn't safe or appropriate. Um, and that risk then becomes if HIV was transmitted, 
you know, the risk is quite high. Um, it's usually a fairly low risk for a single encounter, but if someone's being sex trafficked, that risk is much higher. And if they're not ready to leave that situation, you know, that's a real ominous conversation that might look like us saying, okay, then let's do condoms and lube dispensing. And where can you get those for free in the future? And then, you know, you st- it's really complicated. Then you have to talk about what is the person's agency of requiring that someone use a condom when they're in a situation that they don't have a lot of control in. If this person is a minor, all that conversation still happens because they still may not be ready to leave that situation. And depending on the capacity of your local resources, someone may not get to the ED before that person's discharged or ready to go. And if they don't want to talk to anyone, then they're going to go. I still need to make sure that they can protect themselves and from a public health perspective, the community around them, right? Condoms protect not just the, the people involved in the act, but the other people in the community. So it's it can be an awkward, uncomfortable conversation. I think things like education and SIM and us repeatedly practicing using these terms and words and having these conversations the same way we did in med school when we first had to start, started to take a sexual history, getting used to and comfortable with those terms um, makes us more credible as clinicians. And I try to avoid, like I said, you know, terms like trafficker and human trafficking. I don't say the word pimp unless my patient says that word. I try to mirror their language, but a lot of it is honestly just the same. It's medicine 101 that we all know and already know how to do. It's, it's about getting comfortable with, we are not Captain America. We're not Black Panther. We're not, you know, the Scarlet Witch. Like we just can't save someone and fix it. I appreciate that you just dorked out on this podcast. (laughs) It makes me so happy. (laughs) Well, that's my childhood, right? That's what I grew up on. I mean, I'm required to be up to speed on those, (laughs) given that I work exclusively with kids. If you don't know Uh, what's going on, and if you don't have a team, I I will say I'm team Marvel, but I will engage in some DC just to, because you have to sometimes, but like, I I also live on the, on the Marvel side. The the X-Men have always been, uh, been what drew me in. So I think if I could be any, anybody, it'd be Wolverine, you know, surly with claws sticking. (laughs) Oh, we won't talk. (laughs) We we could go down this rabbit hole a very, very long way. (laughs) This is going to be, this going to be the first interview in our, in our new podcast, physicians and and their superheroes today. I I would love to be on that podcast. (laughs) Um, so, you know, I, I'm envisioning a, I've not had this happen, but, but I can see it happening because it does with some other things. Like when I talk to young people about, uh, wanting to know if they've been drinking or using drugs and, you know, I usually will tell them, I want to know this, not because you're in any legal trouble with it, but because I, I need to know to be able to appropriately care for you. But I can envision a, trying to start that conversation with somebody who is experiencing trafficking and their question back to me being, you know, what is, what is my legal risk if I identify myself to you? And, and, uh, you know, I'm thinking just in the news recently, the, um, uh, I'm sorry, I, f- I forget the woman's name. Sin- from. Sintoya, I think Sintoya, is how you pronounce it. Yeah. Sintoya Brown. Yeah. Sin- yes. Who, who seems to have been, you know, almost overpunished because she was also involved in trafficking and, and didn't really get credit as a, as a victim. And, and I don't know what to tell that person. And there, there may not be a, a standing answer. So it's funny is not the right word, but it's perfect that you had that scenario of alcohol because I mean, we, I guess we probably do see a lot of quote unquote underage drinking from a legal perspective. Right. I took care of, of a young person who, came in, they were essentially, they, they were just really, really, really drunk. Um, and a friend that was with them was really concerned about them and was like brought them to the hospital, which is absolutely what I want every single person 
who cares about someone else to do, right? Um, and when this person was sort of starting to finally sober up, they were really tearful. I was like, why are you so tearful? Like, I know being hungover probably stinks, but what's going on? So I just sat down and I said, hey, you seem really upset about what I'm not sure. Is there something else going on? I mean, if someone, if you're in danger, if someone's hurting you, maybe that's something I have to talk with someone about and we, that might be helpful, maybe. Um, but is there something else going on? And sort of leaving it there, that per, it, it ended up that this person met the definition of sex trafficking, had been engaging in cyber survival sex as a minor and actually wanted and was embarrassed and humiliated. And that was why they hadn't reached out to their parents. And I said, you know, I don't know your family situation. You know it better than I do. Do you think that your mom would want to see you again, would want to talk to you? And they said, yeah. And I said, do you want me to call with you? Do you want to use our phone and call on your own? And so we called together. And I got to be a part of, it was one of those rare moments when I got to be or feel like I was part of this superhero team where there was like this tearful family reunion that this person did meet the, 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 the definition of trafficking, you know, and that report was still made. But the good news was that this was sort of a happy ending or a happier ending. We don't know. It's not a happily ever after. We don't know how things right. shake down right. in the long run. Um, but this was great because this kid had been missing. Folks were looking for them and wanted to find them. And they left not an abusive home situation. They left for other reasons. But having that honest conversation, I tell people all the time, you know, I, my job is not to narc on you about the drugs or the alcohol. Um, I honestly, I, that's not what I'm interested in. I'm interested in that you're safe and that you're able to, that you have agency in making choices about your drug use and that you're aware of what the consequences could be and how, if you're going to keep doing that, can you do that as safely as, as possible, which is a harm reduction model. Um, and letting them know that if in the course of our conversation, other things come up that I do have to report about, they, they know that I will make that report. And sometimes let's be honest, like it happens after the fact, they beat me to the punch. They told me something that I didn't see coming. I got blindsided. I tell them still, okay, I hear you. This is what we need to do medically or maybe psych. And then this is what I have to do from a legal perspective. My first goal, my first job, the things I will take tend to first are the medical and the psych because that's my job. And then I will also do the thing that I'm required to do by law and let me know how you want to participate in that other thing. It's not, it's not a, you're right. It's absolutely not a, I can say this one line to everyone and everything will be okay. Um, and sometimes people will not be happy but they will appreciate the honesty every time. Um, they may not like it. Those are different things, but at least I told them, right? right. There was no hoodwinking involved. And, and hopefully it doesn't ruin them forever wanting to, to trust the healthcare system again. Yeah, I think what ruins them is us not telling them and making secret reports because they know they, who they told <laughs> and they know when the situation unfolded and like, oh, well, this is because I said something to that guy. All right, I'm not talking to them anymore. Yeah, this this is one of those things I feel really strongly about. It 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 doesn't save you any distress in the long run to try to make some sort of secret report. And and this comes up a lot whenever I've got to make a mandated report. And the question is always sort of what do you what do you tell and how much do you tell the the caregivers that are with them? And, and I don't think trying to hide it um, actually makes anything better in the long run. I think it makes it more explosive, actually. Yeah. I agree. Um, so, and it, and it is it isn't necessarily appropriate in every situation to do it, um, just me, the doc and 
so-and-so. Maybe that means I need to have a, a multidisciplinary team. If I have that at my disposal, if I have social work, be with me when I make that, have that conversation, or maybe it's better if they deliver it, whatever that is, you know, sort of reading that situation based on your resources, because, you know, we also do have to think about our safety and sometimes things are going to explode before we think they will. And so we have to think about that too. Again, it, if they know that it, at the very, if they know at the, the very least, the bare minimum that we will tell them the truth, then they know that when they come back, number one, what they shouldn't tell us if they don't want us to say anything. But two, they know, all right, you know what? I'm going to be honest with them because they were honest with me. And I know that I can get honesty out of these people. Um, they'll, they'll keep it real with me. Um, I think that's so much more respected. Are there online resources or, or other things available if you have a patient that you suspect is experiencing trafficking or, or maybe who is an adult and um, there's nothing there to mandate a report, but you would like to provide them with, with something you know, that they can either read or pursue on their own? Yes. Um, so there's a few things. Um, because you know podcasts can go all over the world, I want to be clear that I'm specifically talking about the United States um, and that we are clear that every city and every state has its own resources. And so clinicians do, it would behoove all clinicians to be aware of their own resources, especially if your institution doesn't already have a policy or a protocol in place that would guide you. The National Human Trafficking Hotline is one 888 It's available 24-7. Um, they have English and Spanish speakers and I think like over a hundred, maybe more languages um, available using an interpreter um, that either clinicians can call into and say, hey, I'm worried. And you can call anonymously at the beginning, you know, if that's what you think you need to do. Um, if you're worried about HIPAA, this person hasn't given you permission to talk others, but you're trying to find resources for someone. You don't have to say, I have a 37-year-old, whatever. You can give an age range if like resources are age range specific. But you can say, I have this person who I'm worried about trafficking. I'd like to connect them to resources if can you help me figure out what's in my area? Um, that's probably the best thing that I can tell people from a national perspective, largely because, it, you know, I don't know the resources in Tennessee or in California, all of them. So there's that. Um, but also the patient in front of you can call. Sometimes I'll put someone on the phone and say, hey, do you want to do the talking and let them guide? I always want to give my patients as much power and control and agency that I can because let's be honest, it's their life and it's their body. And I'm not the one who has to live with whatever comes next. It's them. So they can call now in the ED with me. They can call in the future whenever they're ready. They can actually text. They can send an SMS to 233733. They can text help or the word info. These are important things for us to be able to share with patients, but also recognize that these are very trafficking specific. And so I ask people first, can I give you something that is this specific? Because depending on their, their situation, if the wrong person finds this on their person or in their stuff, I could have just really done some real damage. If they can't do that, maybe they can accept my card, which my card just has, I'm, it's just doctory stuff. It's not like trafficking stuff. And it has the number to the emergency department. So, you know, they can call the ED and the ED like is almost always going to tell them. I mean, I never hear the clerk say, no, no, don't come in. They right. say, well, we can't really give out information. Like we can't give advice over the phone. You should come to the hospital, which is great. Cause that's all I want them to do. Come to the hospital. Um, and so we can give that to them, um, and let them have that resource. If folks want to look online, they can also go to that online. Patients want to find out online, uh, read some more about what might be their situation. They can go to the website, which is humantraffickinghotline.org. Um, clinicians can also do that. I find that we're 
when we're pressed for time, reading and scrolling for information is tough. And so the hotline in some ways is easier. In some ways it's not because, you know, if you're put on hold, you feel like, forget it, I'll call back. There is training for folks who are interested. I can send you a link that you could maybe post in the show notes or something. Put it up in the show notes. Um, It's a 22 minute thing. So that's, I mean, it feels long to us in the emergency department. I wouldn't watch it on shift, Um, but it's pretty short and it's fairly comprehensive in the sense that it talks about labor and sex trafficking and it's gender inclusive because a lot of the the conversations become very much what happened to her and there's an assumption that only women and girls can be sex trafficked so i like it for that and it's free so you don't have to and you don't have to like log in or there's nothing like nobody wants your contact info you can just watch it. I like when nobody wants my info. They just give me information. Yeah, me too. Because then then I got to go through the process of unsubscribing from the stuff that they send me. Um, do you, do you want to talk at all about any of your ongoing research or what heel trafficking is? Sure. Um, so from the research standpoint, um, I have done a bit of work on screening tool development. Um, we actually just published uh, a screening tool that's validated for use among service providers who are serving homeless young adults. That is not for the ED. The the tool is very short. It's only four dichotomous questions. It's not for the ED because it hasn't been validated in a healthcare setting. So if we do a study or someone else wants to do the study um, where they test whether or not it works in a healthcare setting, that's awesome. But I can't, I would love to say that it works in an ED. I don't know that. Um, That is the study that we're working on now. Um, that hopefully by actually sometime around, I would say spring 2020, we'll have an answer. That that would be awesome if we had that. My research is in invisible populations in general, so beyond trafficking, um, but there is certainly overlap. A lot of vulnerable populations are also vulnerable to, to trafficking. In regards to heel trafficking, we started in October 2013. So this past October, we had a five-year birthday um, All right. <laughs> I know we're big now. <laughs> we, uh, we, like I said, we're, it's an interdisciplinary group of survivors and professionals doing anti-trafficking work. We do not do service provision work, um, directly. We do have people who purposefully serve, uh, survivors of trafficking, but HEAL does not provide direct services. You don't need to be a doctor to participate. So we have doctors, nurses, PAs, NPs, teachers, social workers, community health advocates, it, it, law enforcement. Every, it's if you are doing anti-trafficking work, heal is for you. As long as you recognize that, you know, whatever your specialty is, won't solve trafficking. We've had trafficking for centuries, in some name or variation or form. We're not going to solve it by thinking about it from, oh, well, if I can just arrest everyone who's doing bad stuff, this will go away. That hasn't worked for us on the war on crime. It hasn't worked for the war on terror. It hasn't worked for the war on drugs. It, that, that paradigm does not work. It's insufficient. It is one mechanism among many that are needed for us to be successful decades, maybe, hopefully not centuries down the line. So we do a lot of advocacy work. We do a lot of and technical and training assistance um, and helping states and, and the federal government determining you know, how to write their laws and um, how best to allocate those resources, um, just advising on that kind of thing, um, a lot of education. Our goal is to really broaden the paradigm from one that's law enforcement strictly to one that recognizes the value of everyone's work. Anti-homelessness work is anti-trafficking work, anti-poverty work, anti-racism, anti-sexism, anti, anti-bad stuff is anti-trafficking work. 
that's going to wrap up our discussion. She drops some absolute knowledge bombs in both parts of this discussion. I'm so glad that Dr. Chisholm Straker was available to come talk to me. I ended that discussion feeling like I wanted to jump out and run through a wall, but also trying to be cognizant of the fact that she stressed over and over again, we're not the superheroes who are going to fix this all on our own. I'm going to write up a summary that will be listed in the show notes as well as post links to everything that she mentioned as far as resources. If you want to get involved with anti-trafficking work, heel trafficking is a great place to start, as well as whatever your local resources are. This has been the Little Big Med Podcast. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or via the website www.littlebigmed.com. Please, if you enjoy the content that I put out, head on over to iTunes, your favorite podcasting platform, and leave us a review. It really does help other people find the show, continue to get this knowledge out there. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.